0: Would you please turn with me in your Bibles back to that passage we read this morning? Please turn with me back to John, Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3, and then verse 14. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him, was not anything made that has been made. Verse 14. And the word, full of grace and truth, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Well, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on the ministry of his holy word. Father, we bow in your presence. We plead for your power and grace as we consider what is a great, unfathomable mystery that you, by the Holy Spirit, would shed light upon our hearts that we would receive it, even though we can't ever fully understand it. That we would believe it and confess it and live in the light of it for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Matthew and Luke also unveil the miracle of Christmas, which is the virgin birth. And then Luke uncovers the message of Christmas, which is, to you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But John unveils the mystery of Christmas, the mystery of God incarnate. So what is a biblical mystery? A mystery is a truth revealed in scripture that we can never understand completely and that we would never know or even dream of apart from special divine revelation. So a mystery is something we would never just dream up, but it comes out of divine revelation, special divine revelation, and we can never fully, thoroughly understand it. And this biblical mystery is this. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh. To summarize it, I would say this. Without ceasing to be what he ever was, he became What he never was. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Without ceasing to be God. He became what he never was. Flesh. There's a mystery. That's the mystery of Christmas. Without ceasing to be. What he ever was, he became what he never was. So, what do I want to say to you this morning? First of all, I want you to look at this mystery with me. I want you to look at it. I want you to consider it. I want you to behold the mystery of Christmas. Secondly, Once you look at it, consider it, behold it, then I want you to believe it and to confess this to be true. And thirdly and finally, I want you to live in the light of it or benefit from it. So I want you to see it. I want you to believe it. And then I want you to live in the light of it. Benefit from it. Does that make sense? That's where I want to go this morning. I could say behold it, believe it, benefit from it. I could say that. But I like this better. I want you to see it. I want you to believe it. And I want you to live like it. Okay? But that's the idea, right? So you've got to see the mystery, first of all. Then you've got to believe it and confess it. And then you've got to say, well, so what? I mean, so God became human, so what? Well, you've got to live in the light of it. got to take it to heart and live according. All right, so without further ado, I want you to look at it. Without ceasing to be what he ever was, he became what he never was. So let's look, first of all, at what this text and then the rest of scripture, although a lot less on the rest of scripture, what this text tells us about what he ever was, his deity that is inherent, that is not acquired, but inherent. It's what he ever was, God, the supreme being. First of all, observe that the word is a person Who always existed. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning of space and time, He already was. He is eternal, unoriginated. In the beginning was. The Word. He's a person who has self awareness and communication and communion with other persons. And the Word is a person distinct from God the Father who always had personal communication and communion with the Father as God the Son. Observe, it says, and the word was with God. Verse 2 says, the same, the word, was in the beginning with God. Now Jesus, when he was here on earth, never forgot the reality of his personal communion with God the Father before the foundation of the world. He says in John 17, verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me with your own self with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And the word was with God. The glory... That I had with you before the world was. And then he says in verse 24 of John 17. Father, I will that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. That they may may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. The same was in the beginning with God. God the Word, God the Son, was with God the Father. There was with those persons love, fellowship, communion, life before the foundation of the world. These persons lived in love and delight. And communion. And fellowship. And even when Jesus was here on earth. He remembered it. What he ever was. Before the universe was created. The word God the son. And God the father. Had personal communion. Marked by love. A relationship of delight between the Father and the Son. And furthermore, the Word is a divine person. He is the supreme being. In the beginning was the Word. God the Word, God the Son is eternal. And the Word was with God. There was a personal communion and fellowship between these two persons, Father and Son, before the foundation of the world, marked by love and communion, and the word was God. He is and was the supreme being, and the word was God. Now, some people don't like that. They can't can't get it. They, They want to translate this differently. They want to say, the word was a God, small g. You know what the problem with that is? There aren't more than one God. There's only one God. There's no such thing as the gods. There's only one God. There's only one supreme being. And the Father is that supreme being. And the Son is that supreme being. And though this text doesn't focus on it, the Holy Spirit is also that supreme being. And these three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, are the one and only supreme being. So, well, that's mystery. Yeah, but that's not even the mystery we're getting to. That's only the foundation. That there are three persons. The Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And yet they're not three separate gods, there's only one God. And the Father is the supreme being, and the Son is the supreme being, and the Holy Spirit is the supreme being, and the Word was God, not a God, God. There's only one God. And that God is the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Father and the Son are not the same person. The Word was with God was between the Son and the Father a fellowship, a communion, a personal fellowship of love that always was. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He is a divine person. He is the supreme being. And the Apostle Paul. And I, I, I said to myself, can I dare get into this this morning? Do I even dare? If I get into this, these poor people are going to be so spaced out. You're not going to be able to endure it. It's more than can be comprehended. But I don't know any better. Amen. Amen. Have Philippians 2 5, the apostle dares to address this mystery. And he says, when he tells us about the so what, and I have to get into it because it, it's foundational to the so what. Here's so what have this mind in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not regard being on an equality with God. As robbery, or if you must, stolen property, the result of robbery. The Word was God. He was in the Father's form. He was the supreme being, equal with the Father. He did not regard equality with the Father as stolen property or robbery. He regarded it as his own rightful possession as the supreme being. And very briefly, before the foundation of the world, equal with the Father, and upon creation in his pre-incarnate life, after he creates the angels and the world and light, his form is this. He is invisible. He is invulnerable. His special presence is celestial. He is regal, reigning in glory over the world and all the angels and everything he created, and unapproachable. It says, he robes himself with light as with a garment. He dwells in light, unapproachable. This was his life before he came here. Isaiah describes him in Isaiah 6, 1 to 5. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his glory filled the temple And the angels around him crying, holy, holy, holy. And John tells us in John 12, 41, that Isaiah saw the glory of God the Word, God the Son, before he came here. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. He saw the glory of Jehovah the Son, Jehovah the Word. He's with the Father. He's the supreme being. He dwells in light, unapproachable, regal, reigning in glory, special presence in heaven, invulnerable, invisible, the supreme being without a human body, enjoying the fellowship of his Father, equal, With God, the Father. Invisible, invulnerable, celestial, regal, unapproachable. That's what he was. That's what he ever was. That's what he was before he came here, after he created the world and the angels. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that has been made. God the Son, God the Word is the creator and preserver of the universe. The Apostle Paul also describes this reality. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 he says, For by him, Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him, Christ, and for him. He is the supreme being. And he is before all things. In the beginning was the word. And by him all things consist. He preserves the universe that he made he is the creator and sovereign lord and preserver of the universe that's what he ever was ever was the supreme being and since the creation of the world ever is the creator and preserver of the universe and since the creator of the world and of the angels his special presence is in heaven. He's dwelling in light, unapproachable, on the throne, invulnerable, glorious, equal with God the Father in his form. What do you think of that? So now, that's just wow, right? Wow, wow. You say, well, is that the end? <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's the beginning. That's the beginning. That's not the end. That's the beginning of the story. Now consider with me verse 14. We've looked at his inherent deity. Now look at his acquired humanity. John one fourteen, And... Uh, I'm going to tell you why I translate it the way I do. I And the different translations translate it differently. I'm going to give you my translation. I'm going to explain it. You probably, Some of you probably have probably been thinking about it since I first said it. But I'm going to explain it to you now. And the word, full of grace and truth, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Now the word order in the Greek is different than that. The word order in the Greek is the way... Many of the translations translate it and some people try to translate it differently. They move that phrase around. The word order in the Greek is, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now in English, word order is significant. But in Greek, The main way that you understand what something modifies is not the order in which it appears in the sentence, but the case ending. And what is abundantly clear is that which comes at the end of the sentence, full of grace and truth, agrees with the word. And it's the only possible word that can be the antecedent modified by grace, full of grace and truth, is the word. Now in English, we don't write it that way. We don't have case endings that agree. We don't determine what modifies what by agreement we, of case endings. We determine it by word order. But that's not the way Greek is. So I'm trying to translate it from Greek into English in a way that shows you that full of grace and truth modifies the word, OK? And that's very clear in the Greek. It doesn't matter where it appears in the sentence. It matters what case ending it has. Now, that's the only thing I'm going to tell you about it. That's why some of your translations put everything intervening in parenthesis in order to try to capture that. Some of the translations move full of grace and truth closer to word in order to capture that. I'm just going to explain it to you. It's not a main point, but it's important to get it because we're not, you're not reading Greek when you're reading John one uh, English. You're reading Greek, and you've got to translate that Into English. That's the problem with the verse. Now, look what it says. And the word became flesh. Without ceasing to be what he ever was, he became what he never was. He became what he never was. He acquired, he took. To himself humanity. He became flesh. Now this word flesh. Literally means the soft tissue around the bone. But it has several broader uses. And these in particular grow out of the Hebrew use. Of the Hebrew equivalent of that word. And It often refers to the entirety of human nature. And in such passages it could be translated human and that's exactly what it means here. And the word became human. And the word became human. Luke chapter 3 verse 6 says all flesh will see the salvation of God. That doesn't mean all soft tissue around the bone will see the salvation of God. It means that all humanity, all humans, it will come to the whole human race. And in Acts 2.17, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And Romans 3.20, by the deeds of the law will no flesh, no humanity be justified in his sight. That no flesh, no human being would glorify, would glory in his presence. 1 Corinthians 1.29 and so on and so forth. And it's abundantly clear that when it says the word became flesh, it means he became human. It means he acquired a true and genuine humanity. He took to himself a real and complete human nature, a human body and a human soul. And he has a genuine human body. He didn't just appear to have a human body. He really and truly took to himself humanity with a true human body. Luke chapter 2 verse 52 says, And Jesus advanced in wisdom and in stature. He came into this world as a baby. And he grew up. He increased in height. Until he reached his full adult height. He had a genuine human body that grew. And even after his resurrection in Luke 24, 37 to 39, he continues to have a human body. When they saw him raised from the dead, they were terrified and afraid. And suppose they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do questionings arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you behold me having. A true human body. Even after he's raised from the dead. And that human body is glorified. He has a true human body with real human flesh and real human bones. And he had real human blood. A truly human body. And furthermore, he has a truly human soul. In Matthew chapter 26... Verse 38 and 39 we read. Then he says to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Abide here and watch with me. And he went forward a little and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass away from me. Nevertheless, not as I will But as you will, he has a true human soul with a submissive human will that submits to the will of his Father. And he has a true human soul with a limited human mind. That same text that speaks about his body growing in height and developing physically, says, In Luke 2, 52, and Jesus advanced in wisdom. And we read in Hebrews that he learned through the things he suffered in his human nature, in his human soul, has a limited human mind. And as the little boy grew up, he increased in wisdom. A genuine human soul with a submissive human will. And a limited human mind. He took to himself a genuine humanity in the likeness of sinful flesh with all its infirmities and yet without sin, so that he was susceptible and vulnerable to temptation and yet he never sin. And Paul says, and being found in fashion, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He took to himself a genuine human body and a genuine human soul in the likeness of sinful flesh With all the infirmity and weakness he was subject to suffering and pain and even death and yet without sin. He suffered being tempted and yet without sin. In his humanity he came from heaven to earth. I came down out of heaven, he said. And his bodily presence then was not celestial, but terrestrial. And in virtue of his human body, he was visible. And he was approachable. So that they could spit on him. And punch him and hit him. And yet, he became what he never was without ceasing to be what he ever was. When he came here and took to himself a human body and a human soul, he did not cease to be the supreme being. God incarnate is omniscient, Matthew 11 says, verse 27, All things have been delivered unto me from my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, neither does any know the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son wills to reveal him. And Peter realized it. he said to him the third time, Do you love me? Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. He's not only omniscient, but he's also sovereign. Again, that same text in Matthew eleven twenty seven: 27, All things have been delivered unto me of my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, neither does any know the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son wills to reveal. Furthermore, Christ, God incarnate, he's not only all-knowing and not only sovereign, he also is omnipotent. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 says, our citizenship is in heaven from where we wait for a Savior who, Jesus Christ, who will fashion anew the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed To the body of his glory. According to the working whereby he, God incarnate Jesus Christ exalted in heaven. Is able to subject all things to himself. He is able to subject everything to himself. God incarnate Jesus Christ is omnipotent. God incarnate Jesus Christ is sovereign. God incarnate Jesus Christ is omniscient. He knows everything. His will is in control. He is able to do whatever he wills to do. Nothing's too hard for him. God incarnate Jesus Christ is omnipresent. Matthew 18 verse 20 says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Wherever two or three are gathered, I am there. He does not cease to be omnipresent. I'm not saying his human body is omnipresent. His human body's not here right now, but he's here. He's here. The person is here in virtue of his deity. And even when he came down, I am come down out of heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And then he says in John 3.13, And no one has ascended into heaven but he that descended out of heaven, even the Son of Man, not who was in heaven, but who is in heaven. His bodily presence, has acquired humanity was on earth, but he, the Supreme Being, the person, God, the Son, in virtue of his deity, which he never gave up, was in heaven even when he was bodily here on Earth. And furthermore, he's eternal. Christ, God incarnate, is eternal. It says in Matthew 28 and verse 20 teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And look, I'm with you always. I am with you always. Not everywhere only. He's with us everywhere, but he's also with us always, throughout all time, because he's eternal. He's not limited by time. And he said, that's why I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. And when he said this to the Jews, they went nuts. And I end with this. God incarnate Jesus Christ. I mean, I I end this part with this. I end saying to you without ceasing to be what he ever was, he didn't cease to be omniscient. He didn't cease to be sovereign. He didn't cease to be omnipotent. He didn't cease to be omnipresent, and he didn't cease to be eternal. In John chapter 8, verses 57 to 58, he said this in such stark striking language that the Jews took up great offense and were ready to kill him right on the spot for saying it. He says, and I read, John 8, 57 and 58, the Jews therefore said to him, you aren't yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? He told them. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Abraham, by faith, believed in the promise that Messiah would come to save the world and Messiah would be his promised descendant. Abraham saw it by faith and rejoiced to see it and was glad. He said, what did you just say? How do you know Abraham rejoiced to see your day? You're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? What did Jesus have to say to that? Listen to this. Jesus said to them, Verily, truthfully, truthfully, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. What? Before Abraham was born, I am. How do you think they reacted to that? They picked up stones and they were ready to kill him right on the spot. Why? Who was he claiming to be? He was claiming to be Jehovah. The great I am. I am. I am eternal. I have always been. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God before Abraham was born. I am didn't cease to be true when he took to himself human nature. And he was aware of it. Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. He took to himself. He became what he never was without ceasing to be what he ever was. He didn't cease to be eternal. He didn't cease to be omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent when he became human. Sovereign, omnipresent, omnipotent, eternal God. He always was and he still is. He became what he never was. Human. Without ceasing to be what he ever was. Supreme being. Divine. He did not give up his deity when he acquired humanity. And he said so plainly and clearly. So, what do we have in summary? We looked at his inherent deity. We looked at his acquired humanity. Now let's look at the biblical summary. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What At one and the same time, God the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ, here's the mystery, is fully human and fully divine. God the Son incarnate at one and the same time has the omniscient divine mind and a limited human mind. He has the sovereign divine will and a submissive human will. And in his divine nature, he is omnipresent and eternal. And in his human nature, he was present on earth and now is present in heaven. His human body is, And his human soul are not everywhere. But he the person in his divine nature is everywhere. So that these two natures, human and divine, are united in one person, God the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ, without commingling them, without confusing them, without distorting them. And he remains one person forever. There's the mystery. God the Father did not become human. God the Holy Spirit did not become human. But God the Son, without ceasing to be divine, became human. He acquired humanity so that he is now both human and divine. That's the mystery of Christmas. This is something that you need to believe And to confess. Does it matter whether you believe this kind of stuff? What do you think? Our London Confession of Faith sums it up so that everybody that's a member of this church has read it and says, yeah, I believe this. This is what it says. So that the two whole perfect and distinct natures, human and divine, were inseparably joined in one person, God the Son, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and men? And we say, as a church, that that's one of the things most surely believed among us. We confess this mystery... I could have gotten into the weeds this morning and quoted from the Latin and Greek creeds that have confessed this over the centuries, but note well, I passed that by, just note well, and my wife asked me this morning, what are you preaching today? I said, the mystery of Christmas, and I said, I'm saying, look at it and then confess it and believe it, and I said, look at all the things throughout history of all the people and all the heretics that have denied every single aspect of this mystery. And I went through the names of all these heretics. I said, if I go through all those names with these people this morning, we're going to be in the weeds. And then my son-in-law said, well, you just said it to me in two minutes. Why don't you say it to them in two minutes? 1 John chapter 4 says, Hereby you know the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not of God. And John chapter 5 says, and we know that, verses 20 and 21, and we know that the Son of God is come and has given us an understanding that we know him that is true, and we are in him that is true. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. And then in 2 John, verse 7 and 11, we read, For many deceivers are gone forth into the world, even they that confess not that Jesus Christ comes in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Look to yourselves that you don't lose the things which you've wrought, but that you receive a full reward. Whoever goes onward and abides not in the teaching of Christ does not have God. He that abides in the teaching The same has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and brings not this teaching, do not receive him to your house and give him no greeting, because the one that greets him partakes in his evil works. Whoever goes onward, the deceiver, the antichrist, and does not confess that Jesus Christ comes in the flesh, has not God. That doesn't confess the deity of Christ. That doesn't confess the humanity of Christ. The unity of the person of Christ. And that in this one person, God the Son incarnate, deity and humanity are joined forever so that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that he is the true God. And that in him is eternal life the last 2,000 years, people have been denying every aspect of this mystery. The first thing that they denied was that Jesus had a true human body. After that, they denied that he was truly God. They denied his deity. Then people came along and said, you know, he didn't really have a human soul. Other people said, no, he didn't really have a human will. Other people came along and said, well, it's not one person, it's two different persons. The, the God, the Word, and the man, Jesus, two different persons. They're not the same person. They came along and said, well, the human nature and divine nature got all mingled together into one composite nature. And you know what? All those heresies, all those heretics over the last 2,000 years, they go out names. They've all been rejected by the church, and we're warned. It does matter what you believe. State of your soul. Depends on whether or not you believe and confess that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. That he is truly God and truly man. Whoever goes onward and doesn't bring this teaching is not of God. Don't be deceived, folks. These things really do matter. It's not enough just for you to look at it and see it. You also have to believe it and confess it. And this mystery is really, uh, in, some, in some ways, it's tremendously overwhelming. You say, why is it so overwhelming? Well, I mean, look at this stuff. That Christ is one person who is an impeccable divine person tempted to sin. How can that be? I don't know. But in virtue of his human mind and his human will, he was really tempted to sin. But he's an impeccable divine person who cannot sin. Furthermore, here's one person, God the Son. And he has a divine mind that is omniscient. He has the divine mind. There aren't three divine minds, but one divine mind. And that mind is the mind of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. they are not three sovereign wills, but one sovereign will. Not three supreme beings, but one. And that sovereign will is the will of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the Son incarnate has two wills. He has the sovereign divine will and he has a submissive human will. And he has two minds at one and the same time. One person has the omniscient divine mind and a limited human mind. Can you explain that? No. Can't explain it, but I'm not about to deny it because I can't explain it. All of the truth of the doctrine of the Word of God leads us back to the fence around the mystery. No, we can't explain it. But we have to look at it, and then we have to believe it. See it, and believe it. Do you believe it? Do you see it? Do you believe it? All right. If you see it and believe it, then listen to the final thing I want to say to you this morning. And that is that you would live in the light of it and benefit from it. Paul says, here's the so what. Have this mind in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. And in this becoming human, becoming what he never was without ceasing to be what he ever was, We sang it this morning. It's why I wanted to sing this hymn again. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, being found in fashion as a man. When they looked at Jesus, what they saw in outward appearance is what appeared to be simply an ordinary man. He didn't have the halo and all that stuff. He just looked like an ordinary human being. He wasn't dwelling in light unapproachable. They approached him. They spit on him. They punched him in the face. Are you kidding me? Really? God incarnate and they spit at him and punched him in the face and called him names? They did. He looked like an ordinary human being. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead seen. Hail the incarnate deity. He didn't cease to be celestial in his deity. He's still present in heaven, reigning on the throne of glory. And yet, that same person in his humanity is here on earth, vulnerable, visible, approachable. He was willing to do that, yes. He humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death. Paul says, Reflect on the disposition of God the Son, willing to lead that to come to earth. And in his special presence, in his bodily presence, become vulnerable and visible and approachable. What deference? What kindness? What self-giving love? What a conciliatory. Grace. Have this mind in you. So he's telling them, look, don't think that you're better than others. Don't put yourself above others. Don't live in selfishness and arrogance and self-promotion. But think about, take to heart the disposition of God, the Son, in coming here and Have that attitude in you. Follow his example. Have that attitude in you, which was also in him. Live with a servant's heart. Not to promote yourself. Not to put yourself above others on a pedestal. Not as so many of our rulers today. They've always done it for Jesus condemned it 2,000 years ago, but they make rules for others that they themselves are not willing to follow. Lording it over people. Thinking that you can make rules for other people that don't have to pertain to you. That kind of attitude. Get rid of it. Each considering the other better than yourself. Looking not only at your own things, but the things of others. Becoming considerate, Humble, self-denying, repenting of selfishness and arrogance. That's the so what. And also, never forget why He did it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What? Why would He do a thing like that? Why would He be willing so? To live. For what reason? He did it to save. And rescue sinners. He did it for mercy's sake. He did it for grace. He did it out of love and kindness. Never forget it. And when you think about why. We have this great mystery. Why God the son. Was willing to become human. Without ceasing to be God. Why was he willing to do that? To save you. To save me to deliver us who deserve to go to hell, to deliver us from our own sins and from the wrath of God. And what should that make us feel? Oh, God, thank you. The lengths to which you were willing to go to save the likes of me. And therefore, listen to me, everyone who's here, even if you're not a Christian, the very same mercy that we have experienced, God freely in Christ offers that same mercy sincerely. Jesus says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You'll be saved. And the fact that he was willing to come here and to suffer in a human nature, the writer to Hebrews says, he understands sympathetically, empathetically, what it's like to be tempted because he himself suffered being tempted. We can always go to Christ. You can always open your heart to Christ. You can always talk to him. You can be completely open and honest with him because he's a sympathetic, tender, kind Savior. He himself suffered being tempted. Because he did, he's able to comfort those who are. So you can always go to him. Can always be open and transparent with him. He's full of kindness and grace. You can open your heart to him. This mystery makes him a sympathetic Savior. And he came here to save. And he gives us an example so that we should follow in his steps. Walk home with self denying love. May God be pleased that we would not only look at this mystery, we would believe and confess it, and dear people, that we would live in the light of it for the glory of God. Let's pray.